name is Daniel Gopar, and welcome to Emacs.l, a podcast that's all about Emacs and nothing but Emacs. We talk about packages, cool configs, and the people who make all of this possible. Hello, everyone. For this episode, we have two guests who are also hosts of a Python podcast called Podcast.init. In the intro that I was doing for them, I completely butchered the name and I want to apologize for that. Now, the links for the Python podcast and other things that are talked about in the show can be found in the show notes. All right, thanks. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the third episode of Emacs.l. Now, in this episode, we have Tobias Macy and Chris Patty. Now, both Tobias and Chris were once lost in the land of BIM, but they found their way home back to Emacs. So in this episode, we're going to talk about that journey and also a little bit more about their Python setups for a bit. So uh, do you guys think that intro would do you guys, or do you guys want to briefly introduce yourselves? Uh, sure. So as Daniel mentioned, my name is Tobias Macy. I am one of the hosts of Podcast Init, and I also work as a Python backend engineer as well as doing systems automation and data engineering. I uh, work at a company called Hapyak for where we do interactive video, and I've been mostly in charge of handling the analytics end of that. Okay. Uh, Chris, do you want to...? Sure. My name is Chris Patty, and I am a senior software engineer with Carbonite. We do online backup, and I'm in the infrastructure, cloud infrastructure team. I do... Uh, infrastructure as code stuff. I do um, Chef and obviously some Python. All right, sweet. <laughs> All right, so usually what I do is I ask the question of how did you get into Emacs, but I'm guessing uh, from what you guys have told me, you guys were originally in BIM and then moved to Emacs. So the question is uh, how long have you guys been using BIM and do you guys still use it occasionally or, or what of it? <laughs> So uh, I started out with, uh, actually, I started out originally, it's kind of funny, in Emacs back in around uh, 1988 or so or something like that, 89 maybe, um, uh, on the FSF's uh, guest machines they used to have, at the, they used to have uh, a bunch of workstations that you could get guest accounts on back in days of yore when people trusted each other. Uh, and... Um, I learned Emacs there, and I used Emacs for the first few years of my computing career. But back then, workstations were, you know, a lot smaller than even the average PC or laptop are today. And running Emacs was just ponderously slow. I mean, like it's kind of funny, you know, it, it would take you know two to, to four minutes just to actually get Emacs up. Sometimes even longer, five or six minutes. Um, so. I ended up at that point in time switching to to uh, Vi because I was doing sysadmin work and uh, I needed something that was available on all the servers that I was on and also that would load quickly so I could do quick edits. And I used Vi and Vim pretty happily for the next, I don't know, 15 years or so, something like that, um, until... Uh, just this year, um, well, maybe it's yeah, about a year, close to a year ago now, I was working on uh, Python here at Carbonite, and I really had a need to do, um, or never other than need, I, I really wanted nice tab completion like I saw those folks over in IDE land were getting, and uh, I tried to make Vim do this, and it didn't go so well. Um, it the the available technologies for that just weren't working for me. I was trying various things like Jedi and You Complete Me, and You Complete Me was actually causing my Vim to, to dump core, which is not exactly the ideal editing experience. So it was that that finally made me think, you know, I'm no longer on a uh, Sun 3 workstation anymore. It's, you know, umpteen years later, and compute power is ubiquitous. The reasons I switched away from Emacs are kind of silly now. So I actually gave it another look, and, you know, a lot of younger people like, uh, like yourself, are, are getting into Emacs and realizing it's an amazingly powerful tool. So I sort of jumped in, and uh, that's that's I've been using Emacs since. All right, uh, uh, Tobias. Yeah. So okay. my journey through different editors actually started. Uh, 
about five or six years ago. I started, you know, I was in school and also working as a systems and network administrator and was starting to do a bit more code, you know, coding and editing. And so uh, this was around when I started getting into Python. And so I was looking for an editor that had good support for Python and some auto-completion and some of the other niceties around that. And I had been using Gini for doing my C and C++ editing for school, and it just didn't quite have what I wanted for using Python. So I experimented with the free trials of Wing IDE and then PyCharm and played around with the Spider IDE and a couple of the, couple of the other open source ones. And they were all really great for doing Python, but I was also working in other languages like JavaScript and Ruby at the time, and so... I needed something that had good polyglot support, and none of the IDEs really had that built in. So I ended up landing on using Sublime Text for a while, and that worked great. And after you know doing some more source code editing, I decided that I was tired of pointing and clicking to move my cursor around or using the arrow keys, so I experimented with the Vim key bindings in Sublime and really started to love that, being able to actually do everything from the keyboard. And after a while of that, I eventually just moved to straight Vim, used that for about a year, had it pretty heavily customized, and it got to the point where I was just having a hard time being able to manage all the different external processes that I needed to do in in relation to the source code, so managing Git or running servers or one-off commands, because any time that you try to fire off a command from within Vim, it just locks up the whole process because of its being single-threaded, and so I just really wanted something that had much better support for all those different asynchronous commands and being able to manage them from within an editor because I had had resorted to using tmux to run Vim in one pane and then have a shell you know, terminal session running below it that I could toggle back and forth, and it just wasn't quite as fluid as I wanted, so I decided to start experimenting with Emacs because I had seen one of my coworkers uh, using it, and he was just very fluid and fluent in it. So I was like, oh, give it a shot, and started using it, and after a little while, I actually decided to install the evil package and was using the Vim key bindings for a while, and then decided that actually after... At Chris's suggestion, reading the Mastering Emacs book, I decided to give another shot at just using the native key bindings in Emacs, and haven't haven't looked back. Yeah, the All subprocess. Right. This I'm just just I'm sorry, Daniel. Just real quick, the subprocess. Yeah, the subprocess control was another thing that really I missed because I remembered years ago, you know, like running IRC clients and MUD clients and various other things inside my editor. And I, you know, I really missed that with with Vim. It's it's really kind of nice to be able to, from an editing session, spawn a new window, pop onto IRC, ask a technical question, and and pop back again, and not have to deal with context switching and app switching and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I, I didn't know that Vim was, uh, you know, you run a command and the whole thing would freeze up. I, I didn't know about that. I thought it was a similar kind of Emacs. So uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So you guys were mentioning that you guys tried BIM first and then you transitioned. So uh, Tobias, uh, you just mentioned Evil Mode. So did both of you started using Evil Mode, or did you guys just uh, uh, just dive in like that? No, I uh, I, I didn't uh, I didn't use Evil Mode. Uh, I I basically since I learned Emacs the first time quite a number of years earlier. I still had some of the key bindings like stuck left over in my brain. I never completely forgot. And so I just decided, you know, like Tobias, I, I read Mastering Emacs and, and I just I really decided that I didn't want to have to deal with another sort of abstraction layer over Emacs. I wanted to use the native key bindings and start growing my own set of native key bindings. And so I I never used Evil. I, I jumped straight back to the native native Emacs key bindings because honestly, I didn't find it to be, I didn't find them to be so onerous, right? Like, I mean, they're not. I understand it's a different way of of doing your editing, but I didn't find it to be such a massive conceptual leap that I needed to to put a compatibility mode into play. Yeah, as I mentioned, I did try out Evil for a little while, but after I had already been using the native key bindings, and then 
decided to go back because, as Chris mentioned, it wasn't really enough of a savings to... And, and also just because of the fact that not absolutely everything worked using evil mode, it still required just too much of a context shift and trying to remember, okay, well, here I'm using the Vim key bindings, but here I have to use the Emacs ones, and so I just went back to using straight Emacs key bindings. Um, I did add some custom keyboard shortcuts to... You know, in most specifically being able to switch panes, uh, so rather than having to do uh, Control X and O to cycle through the panes, I added uh, Control C, H, J, K, L to be able to move horizontally and vertically between different uh, buffers in the same view. Hmm. Okay. Now, um, since you guys said uh, you guys kind of didn't like Evo Mode, so I, I'm guessing you guys uh, haven't tried uh, Space Max either, or or maybe you have, or... Yeah, no, I, or... I, I did install it and started trying to play around with it a little bit, but at that point, I had by the time I heard of it, I had already had my Emacs config so heavily customized that it wasn't worth the pain of trying to bring all those over into Space Max and figure out how to replicate my setup, so I just toy around with it for, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes and then just uninstalled it and went back to using my... Chris, uh, have you tried it or...? I have tried it, but but kind of like Tobias, you know, I, I kind of was very comfortable with loading and loading Elisp up and configuring it because, you know, as I said, I used Emacs back in days of yore before there was an Melpa or Elpa or any of that stuff, any of those really fancy package managers... And so these days, it's just so easy to be able to, like, say, I want this package and this package and this package. I didn't feel the need to have anybody give me an, you know, omakase configuration, I guess, is, is the way you could you could view SpaceMax. I think it's a great thing. I think it really eases the adoption curve for people who aren't comfortable or familiar with Emacs and want a, just a reasonable default configuration. I think things like... Space Max and Ergo Max are, are totally awesome, and I, I, I heartily recommend them to people who fall into that category. It's just not me. Yeah, and you're mentioning of uh, the package manager at Elisp. Those are a couple of the other reasons that I made the transition to Emacs as well, and also it made me stay because I had been using... Um, can't remember the name of the package manager in Vim, and it worked well, but it was still just enough of a hack into the... It didn't into Vim that it just didn't quite feel natural, and then also the VimL language is just kind of poorly constructed and bolted on, so it's not as well integrated as Elisp is with Emacs, and it also gives me an excuse to learn some Lisp. If it's the one you turned me on to, it's NeoBundle. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be the one. Okay. All right. I have no idea what any of that is, but okay. Um, so... When you guys switched to uh, Emacs and BIM, I know you guys were uh, jumping around through some editors. So, what? How do you guys feel that the learning curve for Emacs was versus the other ones? Such as uh, I know that uh, one of you guys tried BIM, and then other editors like uh, Sublime. I think you guys mentioned. So, what do you guys think of the learning curves between each one that you guys iterated through? Um. I thought the, the learning curve between Vim and Emacs was pretty comparable. Um, you know, when I first started using Emacs, I went through the built-in tutorial, and that definitely helped a lot, just sort of getting acclimated and figuring out, you know, how, how to find your way around. And uh, actually ended up reading that Mastering Emacs book a while after I started using Emacs. And one of the things that it really pointed out a lot is that you know, in the book he says multiple times, I'm not going to tell you how to do absolutely everything, but what I am going to do is tell you how to figure out how to do everything because there is so much self-discovery that you can do within the Emacs editor itself that it definitely makes learning much more natural. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's much easier. I will say that I, I agree with Tobias completely that I think the learning curves are similar, but I think that... Emacs is much is actually easier if, as as he said, you you get that sort of teach a man to fish introduction, right? Like where you learn how to, you know, you've installed a new mode. What are the keys that it, that it uses and exports? Like, you know, what are the keys that exist in this particular range or prefix? How do you 
ask Emacs, what does this key do? How do you ask Emacs? How do I do this thing? What key is it attached to? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you learn all that and you become really familiar with it, the process of learning to use some new package or mode or just in general sort of increase your efficiency becomes much easier. Um, I will say I think that, that Vim is one of those things where, uh, how should I say this, it's a different, it's a really radically different paradigm, right? I mean, with Emacs, it's it's all this, these these nubbins and bits of functionality that are that are Lisp bound to various keystrokes. With Vim, it's these almost atomic editing um, uh, pieces of functionality that the real power comes in in how you combine them and how you how you leverage them efficiently, like. I really was just barely scratching the surface of Vim editing efficiency until I read Practical Vim by Drew Neal, which for anybody who uses Vim and wants to get better at it, I cannot recommend that book highly enough. I know this is an Emacs podcast, but I just feel like it's such a good resource. I, I really, really, really thought it was pretty great. Um, until I read that book, I really didn't have a sense of how how much power there was there. I've, I've, I've said, you know, the entire time I use Emacs, when people ask me about it, which one would you choose, Emacs or Vim? And I just basically feel like they're two radically different tools, you know? Emacs is this incredibly rich, programmable environment that also happens to be very well suited to editing text, whereas Vim is an editor. It is a, it is a text editor, and it is extremely good at doing that one thing. And yes, you can extend it, but its real power lies in the ability to edit text at a level of efficiency that is just kind of mind-boggling. Like if you if you look at Practical Vim and you look at some of the later, the book is divided up into like practices like Kata basically, where you go through and you learn a new feature and you sort of like start combining them in different ways to sort of really level up your editing skill. I wish there was something like that for Emacs strictly on the text editing side, but maybe it maybe it wouldn't fit the paradigm. I'm not sure. But um, when you look at some of the later ones in the book, and it's just kind of mind-boggling, like, oh, wow, I never even thought of doing it that way, where you can combine two and three keystro- keystrokes in a particularly powerful way. And Emacs just... It, it it's it, it's very different. You can you can get that same level of power, but you might do it with something different, like a keyboard macro or maybe some custom list or something like that. Okay, so uh, just talking about uh, customizing Emacs with Elist right now, it just brought up to uh, just reminding me of something. So BIM uses something called BIM script, or I'm not sure if that's what it's called, but uh, it's supposed to allow you to customize BIM as well, right? Or yeah, yep, that's correct. But so. The thing there is that it was added in much, much later in the history of the Vim editor. So Emacs and Elisp were built together from yeah. day one, and so they're very well integrated and play together naturally, whereas with VimL, it was an afterthought that was created, I want to say, sometime within the past 10 years or so. And as a result, you know, it works, but there are just enough weird edge cases that don't quite make a lot of sense that it just, it it can be somewhat of a painful experience trying to figure out how it all fits together. Um, That being said, it does work quite well when you do, when when you're doing it, but there are certain things that just aren't. And the syntax is sort of a weird amalgam of a number of different uh, influences as well. Yeah, and and the thing to remember is this, from my perspective anyway, it's exactly like what Tobias, Tobias said. It, it it was bolted on, but but moreover, I mean, as I said, Emacs is an Elisp engine which happens to also function as a really good editor, right? Like every action that you can do in Emacs, if you hit you know if you hit a letter, you're really executing insert character, the Elisp function, which happens to you know paste that character into the current buffer, right? Like, so because Emacs is really just this, this you know, build up this layer after layer of Elisp that, that comes together to create a powerful editor, you, there's nothing you can't extend about it. You can, you can extend every possible nook and cranny of Emacs, you know, to, to your heart's content. 
Whereas with Vim, it's it's like Tobias is saying, you know, there are definitely limits to how far and in what in what kinds of ways you can extend it because Vimmel or VimScript it was just an, an afterthought and it's kind of working in 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 conjunction with this already rich corpus of editing atoms that that existed in Vi and Vim prior to its existence. Yeah, and going back to what Chris was saying too about the layering of Elisp to build up the actual Emacs environment with VimScript, sometimes there might be a particular internal state of the editor that you're trying to access and it may just not even be possible because of the fact of how the language was incorporated into the editor itself. Or if you can get at it, then it might be through some convoluted mechanism and it's so it, it can be a lot less intuitive trying to figure out how to actually modify some of the inner workings of the editor, whereas with Emacs, unless it's one of the you know small subset of aspects of it that was actually hard-coded in C, then you can just do whatever you want. So if you want to make the J key type an R, you can do that. I don't know why you would, but it's possible. Right. All right. <laughs> um I think I've also heard about uh, when you're trying to customize BIM that there are certain parts that if you wanted to take effect that you needed to recompile it in order to do what you wanted. Is that is that correct, or am I thinking of something else? Or well, what you could be thinking of is that you know, in addition to Vimmel or VimScript, whatever you want to call it, you also can write Vim extensions in other pro other programming languages like. Ruby or Perl or I think people even wrote a scheme one or something. There's a couple of others. You can use these languages to a certain extent to write Vim extensions, but um, and, and if you do, then if you, the Vim that you want to be able to run these extensions on was not compiled with that language option in it, then yes, you'd have to rebuild Vim with Lua support, or that's another one that they added, or Python support, or you know, Perl support or whatever it is the extension's written in. And it gets very tricky, right? Because, like, then it's like, well, what version of the thing do you need to run and what modules need to be installed? And it, it kind of becomes the whole side project that just gets to be kind of unfun, whereas in Emacs, it's Elisp all the way down. Elisp is the only extension language you can program Emacs in, and that's it. End of story. So it makes life a lot easier. Yeah, and for interfacing with all those other languages, it just uses RPC calls. And uh, with Vim, you know, one of the experiences I had was I was trying to use Python 3 in my source code, so in order to do, get some of the niceties around that, I needed to modify how my installation was compiled so that it was doing dynamic loading between Python 2 and Python 3 because the completion engine I was using was written in Python, but it was only Python 2 compatible, so there was just some weird incompatibilities with how it was trying to manage the Python 2 and Python 3 bindings at the same time, and that was one of the big reasons that I ended up switching to Emacs in the first place. Okay, so just going back uh, briefly into what you guys were saying about recompiling uh, BIM, did you guys, uh, because of the plugins, did you guys ever try to create uh, like a BIM plugin and compile it into BIM using a different language or anything like that Any, or, or try to create a custom package for BIM? Did you guys ever get into that or no? Uh, no. I mean, I, I wrote a plug, well, a VIM script that you could load in just for managing how to automatically expand and contract the width of a buffer for when you're editing side by side and you know you, you want, don't want to have to deal with overflow lines or be able to see the whole line at a time. Um, but I never actually tried to do anything that was actually embedded into Vim itself. Yeah, I, I um, wrote actually a couple of small things using Python which happened to be already compiled into my into my Vim to do some text processing that I didn't want to try to do in Vim proper or in Vimmel because I actually tried to learn Vimmel a couple of times. Not not like I shouldn't say I didn't I didn't put like a tremendous effort into it, but I just never quite managed to wrap my head around that like Tobias said the syntax was um, just odd enough or arcane enough to me that I never really picked it up. But you know, yeah, I, I, I wrote a couple of little text processing things in Python and and they worked fine. 
so when you guys said that you guys were learning Emacs, you guys used the manual that was already built in, and you guys read the Mastering Emacs book. Were there any other resources that you guys were reading to help you, uh, you know, get better at Emacs, or was it just those, or or anything? Uh, a lot of Googling. I ended up landing on Emacs <laughs> Wiki a number of times. Um, that's definitely a really great resource. And then just, you know, exploring some of the different packages and reading through the source to understand, you know, how they were doing things. Um, and also, I, I did a lot of poaching from other people's Emacs.files, say, you know, finding interesting functions and be like, oh, that's useful, and incorporating that into my own. For me, it was... It was the Emacs subreddit on Reddit is always a helpful place. Um, it, the, the Emacs, there's actually a, a, a newish, it popped up kind of as I was starting with Emacs, restarting with Emacs, I should say, Stack Overflow, Emacs, um, uh, whatever you call it, I don't even know what you say, site, I guess. Um, I found that pretty helpful. Uh, there is a an Emacs blog aggregator called like Planet Emacs, I think, or something like that. Um, and I found that very, very helpful. Like, you know, they aggregate like five or six blogs that are constantly writing like endless parentheses, and um, you know, there are just there are there are several others um, that that Planet Emacs blog. You can just sort of add that to your feed reader, and it's a it's a constant source of of interesting articles. Sasha Shacha, I'm, I'm probably mangling her name to death, and I apologize for that because she's awesome. She also writes a lot of really um, uh, excellent articles on Emacs, and she's just an interesting lady in general. She ran a previous Emacs YouTube Google Hangouts, actually, which may even still be going on, called Emacs Chat. That's, that's interesting. Um, she also was involved with the Emacs Conference 2015, um, there was a series of YouTube tutorials that I found very helpful also, uh, and I cannot remember the name of the gentleman who created them. I can, if you do show notes or anything like that, I can, uh, actually, and I also picked them on, on, in our, uh, podcast.init, um, podcast in one of the episodes, so if you go to our site, you can find it there. Um, he wrote... A, uh, a YouTube series called Hacking Emacs uh, that's really excellent, and among them are some uh, really great tutorials on org mode, which, aside from you know the virtues of Emacs itself as an editor, is one of the Emacs superpowers that I just love to show people and kind of boggle people with being able to type up a document real quick and being able to produce amazing PDF output from just an easy text doc and things like that. Um, so yeah, so that's, that, that's, and I think we already mentioned Mastering Emacs, that, that book, and, um, Mickey, can't think of his last names, uh, blog also are, are great resources. Yeah, uh, I think someone at the Emacs conference, uh, this year actually made a, a I think a talk about using Emacs for, uh, scholarly writing, so, you know, like writing their thesis or something, uh, with using org mode, so yeah, uh, a lot of people um, have turned to Emacs because of org mode. Personally, I've never really liked org mode. <laughs> I guess I haven't used it enough, I guess. But, uh, yeah. Um, also, stealing snippets from uh, other people's NIP files, yeah, that's uh, also kind of how I've learned as well on, on customizing Emacs and learning about it. So, I think we'd, uh, we should transition to workflows. Now, both of you guys work a lot with Python. So, did you guys see a major improvement when you guys switched from uh, BIM to Emacs or any other editor or Emacs to this or anything? Or Go ahead, Tobias. I have a polyglot editing environment. Uh, once I finally landed in, well, Sublime Text initially, but Emacs especially, having the ability to very easily work in multiple different languages, even within the same repository, and have appropriate you know, code, you know, syntax highlighting and code completion and different plugins to support the different languages that really improved my ability to work effectively and then also just having the really powerful key bindings and the easy customization to make the editor work exactly how I wanted it to has definitely led to much greater efficiencies than any of my previous editing environments. 
Yeah, definitely. Same here. Uh, I I definitely found that once I um, switched to Emacs and really started getting getting seriously comfortable with it, and again, especially from some of the insights gleaned from the Mastering Emacs book, I found that Emacs allowed me to manipulate code at a much higher level of efficiency and abstraction than I could in Emacs because one of the things mastering Emacs teaches you is uh, the power of S expressions and S expression manipulation in Emacs because S expressions aren't just chunks of Lisp. An S expression in the context of, of editing and manipulation can be anything that I forget the exact nomenclature but basically supports like S expression mode effectively. So like you can treat you know globs of Python whether it be statements or expressions or whatever the case may be as S expressions and manipulate them, highlight them, you know, like cut them, paste them, move them around, manipulate them in ways that you just can't do in Vim because Emacs actually understands the structure of the code. And that's that's to me that's kind of one of the the really sort of like highlights of Emacs versus Vim is, you know, neither one is better than the other. But Emacs just has more sort of like ability to parse and understand the code you're working with and act on it in really intelligent and interesting ways. Besides what Emacs already provides built in, such as you know manipulating with S expressions and everything and understanding Python itself, do you guys uh, use any extra packages to help you with, uh, with Python? Loads. Uh, so... <laughs> So to begin with, I was just using, um, you know, for managing virtual ends, I was using the PyVN plugin, and I actually had a custom hunk of ELISP that I was using to automatically activate different virtual environments depending on the buffer and project that I was on. And it worked well, except for whenever I was trying to open a Python file that wasn't associated with a project that had a corresponding virtual environment, and then it would just lock up and do all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, but Chris actually turned me on to the LPI package, which I had installed quite a while ago, but never actually activated or tried to use. And that has been a breath of fresh air. Uh, so I, for, I was using Anaconda mode with the company auto-completion, and that was working great for managing auto-completion and all that stuff, but LPI is just a much more holistic and well-put-together and unified approach to managing Python environments. And I will say, too, that for JavaScript, the uh, Turn project and the uh, associated package for Emacs is really great for being... That's, that's good to know. I, I, I've sort of been teaching myself Node over the last couple of weeks, so... I'll, uh, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. And I, and I totally agree. LPI is, LPI, totally even Python aside for a moment, LPI is just a beautifully written Emacs package. And it, 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 it's, uh, the, the author obviously put a lot of thought and care into it because one of the tricky things about, you know, um, configuring any sort of programming environment with, with any editor really, but Emacs is no exception, is, you know, inevitably, there's going to be some external tools required to parse that syntax so the editor can integrate with them. And, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in the case of Emacs and Python, you kind of have your choice of two, Rope or Jedi, and LPI just makes it super, super easy. It sets both, either of those up for you, whichever one you choose, and configures them for you and, like, has some smarts built in to be able to say, am I correctly configured and set up? which is just, it's, it's a godsend. So, yeah, LPI is, has been a real, a real boon for me, and, and I just I really love the way, like, he, like Tobias said, the completion works, and it just has a bunch of great features, and I, like, I also like the refactoring capability that, um, that the rope mode brings to bear, and LPI also includes that. So it's just a great, it's a great tool. Yeah, and the uh, Emacs IPython Notebook plugin is great as well for doing any work with, you know, Project Jupyter Notebooks because while editing them in the web browser is great, it you know, every, every time I'm working in an environment where I'm inputting text and I, I just automatically try to use Emacs key bindings and it usually doesn't turn out so well, <laughs> so 
having the ability to work on notebooks from within Emacs, it, it's just so much nicer being able to... Your audio cut out there. Of, um, does a very good job of approximating the web environment in terms of how it handles cells, and, and you can really easily, just with some intuitive key commands, cut and copy and move the cells around or change the particular mode that the cell is in. So definitely worth checking out for anybody who happens to use IPython or Jupyter Notebooks. You mentioned before that you were using ELIS to uh, control the Python environments. So um, I haven't used uh, environments that much. Does uh, LPy provide functions for controlling? I imagine it does, right? For controlling yeah. the... Yeah, okay. And I'm yep. guessing that makes it a whole lot easier than the, the custom hack you had, or...? Yes, it works way better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, uh, uh, so one, one of the ways that it works is it will check for different sentinels in your project. So if there's a .git file, you know, directory or a .hg or a setup.py, or you can also set a particular file that it will use to determine if it's a Python project and what the name might be. And it also does a really, makes it really easy to insert various configuration parameters into your .durlocals.ul. Um, so for like the PyVM work on command configs for the different linters, etc. So it's just it, it does a really good job of managing. It, it basically turns Emacs into a Python IDE. So from now that you guys have been using LPy, do you guys have any custom like ELIS hacks that you guys uh, still needed to have in order to be able to do um, some extra stuff that LPy can't provide? Or does do you guys think that LPy has been basically meeting all your guys' needs as of now? It's been working perfectly for me. I, I personally, my all my Python needs are, are being met by it. I don't, I mean, I, I have a bunch of ELIS that I have obviously in play that has nothing to do with Python, some of which I wrote myself, but as far as Python, LPy does it all for me. I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I've got a, this, like Chris said, I have a bunch of custom Emacs configs and hacks and key bindings as well. I mean, most of that fades into the background after using it for a while, so I can't think of anything off the top of my head that is actually specific to Python that I'm still using, but yeah, I mean, LPy is like, you know, it's just very well put together. So anybody who's doing Python development definitely should check that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, the package. Oh, it's nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. Alpi is very beautiful. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, now I've heard. Um, well, obviously everybody has heard stuff like saying like, "Oh, Emacs can't compare to an IDE such as PyCharm or uh, you know, um, Wing IDE." Do you guys? Um, do you guys have any comments on that? Because uh, I know that the host from, uh, I think, Talk Python to Me, which mm -hmm. is another uh, Python podcast, also said that he was using Emacs, but he moved from Emacs because of PyCharm, because PyCharm provided uh, a, a set of features that, you know, it would have been hard to implement in Emacs and things like that. So do you guys have any comments on that or no? Um I have used PyCharm a few times, and I just find working in Emacs to just be much more of a natural flow. Um, I, I just I don't I don't have the time or energy to dedicate to learning all the different keyboard shortcuts specific to PyCharm, and they do have an Emacs uh, emulation mode, but it just it doesn't have an it doesn't work well enough to feel natural. Um, but I find that we'll you know, particularly once I found LPy, but even using Anaconda mode. Uh, being, so the biggest thing that PyCharm offers that I found was being able to go to a variable or a function call and easily look up where it was defined, but with LPy, you just type meta dot, and it brings you right to the function definition in the file. And so, yeah, after that, there's just no need to even, no need for me to use PyCharm. So from my perspective, I think that um, I, I obviously, from my personal workflow, I agree. Like Tobias, I I'm working in a number of different environments all the time, right? I'm editing shell scripts, I'm writing Python, I'm I'm also writing Chef code because that's also a big chunk of my job. 
Uh, and, you know, we also do other things like Node.js and a bunch of other, like my, you know, I don't happen to be working on those this instant, but my group uses those, and it's nice to be able to, to edit those, all those kinds of things in, in one unified environment. There are a couple of things that PyCharm does that Emacs can do, but I think PyCharm makes it easier to do from a, a UX perspective a little bit. Like, um, you can do refactoring with LPy because it includes and bundles rope mode, but I think that, I, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't think that PyCharm has perhaps a, by virtue of being a GUI, has a nicer interface around various types of refactorings. Um, I also think that uh, PyCharm has some niceties that I have not yet figured out how to turn on in Emacs, which I'm sure exist or at least could exist. Um, like PyCharm will automatically tell you if you're imports, importing something unnecessarily. Uh, you know, so I think that there are certain things that PyCharm makes it easier to do, but I'm not convinced that it, there are things that PyCharm can do that Emacs absolutely positively can't. I just think there might be less of a of a, a pretty interface around them. Yeah, I will say the one thing that is nice about using IDs like PyCharm or any number of other ones that I do miss a little bit in Emacs is the easy simple browsing. Um, you know, if you're using C tags, you can get Emacs set up to be able to display the symbols, but I haven't really found a fluid or easy way to do it, so I definitely do miss that from IDEs every now and then, but not enough to make me switch. And graphical debugging, too, is another one that's, that's you know, again, possible sometimes to do an Emacs, but not always easy or, or pretty or whatever. So yeah, there are definitely, I mean, yeah. I, I do most of my debugging on the terminal anyway, so... Even when I have used PyCharm, I don't I don't really use the debugger in it just because I find IPDB to be such a great debugging environment that it's just not not necessary. No, I I agree. I just I feel like when we're talking about things like IDEs versus Emacs, mm-hmm. I feel like it's important to sort of strip away, like to try to strip away personal preferences from facts. Like, I don't use a graphical debugger either with a language like Python because, again, I, I, like you said, I feel the same way. I don't necessarily feel like it's particularly necessary most of the time, especially for the kinds of code that I'm editing. But, I, you know, I think it's important so that people understand what the actual facts are to be mm-hmm. very straightforward about it and just basically lay it out. Like, I think, I think computing would be a much better place in general if people sort of we're willing to step away from advocacy a little bit in the name of of um, fair and and honest reporting. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So you guys were just uh, since we were just talking about debuggers. So what do you guys use for debugging? Because I know Emacs has built-in support for PDP already. Do you guys uh, use that or within Emacs, or do you guys actually pull up another terminal and start debugging there? Yeah, I'm, I'm still in the habit of just doing it within my terminal. Um, so the built-in PDB from the standard library is great, and there are a number of other extensions to that. So I usually use IPDB, which is a PDB that's wrapped in a lot of the niceties that IPython gives you. Um, PDB++ is really great as well, as is the, um, uh, I can't remember the name of it. Um, the Brython one? Yeah, well, not the, no, there's a PTPDB, I think it is, uh, for okay. Prompt Toolkit by Jonathan Slenders. That one's pretty great. Uh, there's also WinPDB, which is actually a full curses uh, implementation of a graphement. So that one's fun to use sometimes because um, you can actually see the stack info in a pane and see the source code as you're stepping through. So that one's pretty great. But for the most part, I just use IPDB. I am a crusty old geek, and as such, I you I must confess, I usually don't even use any of these tools. I end up a lot of I mean to be and to be fair, the use case for a lot of the code that I write is such that the environment that we need to run it in 
is often not my primary development environment, and so it it you know it it makes it a little bit harder to debug to run debuggers. I don't necessarily have the full suite available, um, so I end up doing a lot of debugging with things like print statements and things like that. Uh, but I should probably see where where I can squeak some of these tools in more in in my workflow. Yeah, you should take a look at Pyringe. What does it's that do? Pyringe. <laughs> Pyringe is a Python debugger that will inject itself into a running Python process so that you can actually do remote uh, remote debugging on live code. Cool. And actually, that is one thing that I really value. Uh, Emacs. Uh, I haven't done so much around lots of heavy uh, debugger work per se, but I really, really appreciate Emacs's um, run Python mode uh, combined with tramp mode, so that, like, as a for instance, some of the development that I was doing recently was um, network switch automation development, and so the the Unix box that the switch was connected to that, that you basically had to run the switch code on was you know something off in, uh, behind our our security infrastructure out on our WAN, and so it was really really great to be able to use Tramp to connect out to that thing, and then say run Python, and then be able to interactively you know Control C Control C and interpret gibbets of code and have them run on on that remote machine. So I could really do a lot of interesting interactive. Um, Proofing and 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 playing and and poking with that, even though my machine that I needed to run on was, you know, inside the the DMZ effectively. So now going back a little bit back to the um, to the IDEs, I just uh, recently I saw a Reddit post. Um, I'm not sure if you saw it too, Chris, since I know you've hang around on the Reddit as well <laughs> on the Emacs side. Um, but basically, uh, it was. A post about using Emacs as a C++ IDE, and it was actually a talk that was given to C++ Con, I think the conference, and it was only around 20 minutes. But basically, the guy went over as why you would use Emacs as an IDE and why would it can even compare or even outperform an IDE. So I'm just curious, um, uh, you know, uh, do you guys think you would be able to? Uh, Give uh, like a talk like that, or um, or something, um, you know, kind of like the Python version. Uh, I'm not asking you guys, you know, to go do it. I'm just, you know, uh, uh, how can I say this? Um, I'm not even sure I'm I'm explaining myself correctly. <laughs> no, I think I, I think I get what you're, where you're going with it, and I, I think I think the answer is that uh, C++ is in kind of a unique position, right? In that um, the nature of the C++ language is such that it's very hard for IDEs and tools like like it to do the kind of analysis that you the static analysis that you can do on Python code. So I guess what I mean by that is you know when you bring up uh, Python or in, in either an IDE or Emacs for that matter, you can do things like you know set tab completion up so that it knows that you're referencing a particular class, and it knows how to complete on what methods could be attached to that class. But the nature of C++, with the include path and just some various other aspects of its object-oriented nature, make that kind of analysis really, really, really hard to do. And so I think it's really questionable whether or not an IDE offers all that much in that in that way. Um, so so basically, what you get for a C IDE is a really convenient execution environment, a really convenient um, uh, debug environment, but you don't get a lot of um, sort of on the fly analysis and interactive code intelligence like you do for Python stuff. So I, I think it might be a lot easier to demonstrate that actually on the Python side than on the C++ side. I couldn't give that talk because I'm not that hardcore of a PyCharm user. Um, but actually, I suspect 
you know, me combined with a PyCharm user could probably put such a talk together. Do you have any uh, thoughts on this, uh, Tobias? Um, yeah, I mean, I've done some C++ development. Uh, mostly I used Gini for that, but it was all pretty small scale. So I haven't really done a lot of extensive use of IDEs around C or C++ usage. Uh, as far as Python, I mean, I think basically the talk would just be, just use LPy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was basically just wondering, you know, because it it would be awesome to see someone like at PyCon, you know, give a give a talk about this, you know, use uh, instead of you know this this is kind of like the equal to PyCharm or Wing IDE, or mm -hmm. you know, it even surpasses those. So I'm just asking, it would be pretty awesome to see that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, I guess if I spent enough time digging into PyCharm and Wing IDE, or you know, what what they offer, then. I definitely think it would be possible. I mean, as we've said before, there, it's definitely within the realm of capability to replicate just about every functionality that they have inside of Emacs one way or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, do you guys want to give a shout-out to anything? Uh, it can be Emacs-related or, or not, it, uh, whatever you guys want. So I just want to say, I know you said you don't like org mode, and I can't imagine, like, I, I, I can't, I, I, this is going to sound insane. I can't imagine not liking org mode. It, it has been the most mind-blowing tool for me in terms of how I organize my notes, how I, how I present things to my coworkers, right? Like, I, the other day I had to put, a, put together a post-mortem, and it, like, I was able to sit there and just write in plain text and put together this post-mortem that... I was then able to hit a couple of keystrokes and generate this beautiful PDF output from, or like I use it to keep track of my picks that we use for the podcast. You know, like I can mark them as as done or or yet to do, so I can see which ones I haven't picked yet. It's just this amazingly capable and rich tool. So I gotta say, org mode. That's that's my shout out. Yeah. Okay. So. In, uh, in Emacs, the things I use pretty much every day would be uh, I use FlyCheck for all of my linting and error checking. I use Maggot all the time for managing my source control. And also Helm and Projectile are great for you know, just about everything. I think you just I think you just mentioned all the packages I use. <laughs> I think everybody uses those packages actually. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're great. There's no reason people shouldn't. <laughs> they're the main reason. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful packages. Uh, so I guess for my end, uh, I just want to give a shout-out to uh, uh, actual uh, Python debugger. It's terminal-based. It's called PUDP. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it. But uh, basically, it's just, you know, standard debugger. You have you can see the code on your left, and on the right, you can see, you know, the variables, the stack, and the breakpoints that you have. It, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty amazing. That's that's what I've been learning as of now uh, to use, but I think it's simply amazing. But yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you guys for uh, being here. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having us. Indeed, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Have a good night. Bye. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. Bye.